This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. Well, good morning and happy Resurrection Sunday to you. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Jeff, and it is my joy to be the lead pastor here at Christ Church. He is risen. He is risen indeed. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Colossians. If you do not have a Bible with you, please download one on your smartphone. I'm going to be talking about some things today that are so good, I want to make sure you can see it for yourself and don't think I'm just making it up. As we begin to head to Colossians chapter 1, for those of you who don't know me that well, my wife uh, Angie and I, we have three children, and they are great. They fill our lives with so much joy, most of the time. Anyone's parent knows what I'm talking about. Uh, I asked them if I could share this story, and they, they, they gave me their permission. Uh, one of the times that is not always their brightest, shining moment is when we ask them to clean up their rooms. You'd think we would be asking them to do something horrible, like cut off a limb or something. But by, by, by their reaction, they just look at us with this, how could you possibly ask me to do such an audacious thing? And they begin to make arguments about why they should not be the ones to have to clean up these toys. Arguments that, quite frankly, I need a legal degree just to try to keep up with. And so, well, yes, I played for this, but it was only for 31 minutes. And yesterday, my brother played with that for 17 minutes. But if you compound that with interest over time, it really becomes more their toy than my toy, and they should be the ones to clean it up. I seriously have thought about perhaps recording some of these conversations and just sending them in to Yale and Harvard and see if they could get honorary law degrees. It truly is, it truly is impressive. They're really great kids, though, and often they do just fine cleaning up. But the other night, one of them came into his room saw the mess, and actually gave me a very honest answer. He just looked at me with this feeling of being completely overwhelmed, and he said, Dad, it's just so hard. It's just so hard. And you know what? I get that. I can relate to that. How often can I look around at my life, and maybe you look around your life, and it can just feel like an overwhelming mess. It is just, it's just hard. Life can be a struggle sometimes, can it? In the book of Colossians, we see one of the early church leaders, a man named Paul, writing to church in the ancient city of Colossae. And part of how he opens this letter is he, he prays for them. And one of the things that he prays for them is that they would experience strength because they were a church that knew something about struggles. This letter was written not only for the church in Colossae, but God worked through Paul in such a way that these words are to be considered God's very words. And therefore, in these words, God has something that he wants to say to us on this Resurrection Easter Sunday. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Strengthened for the Struggle. Strengthened for the Struggle. Would you read with me in Colossians chapter 11? I'm going to... Uh, Chapter 1, verses 11 through 18. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. May you be strengthened with all power 
according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Would you bow your head with me, that the Lord might now bless the reading of his word and the preaching of it. God, we come to you this Easter Sunday, and we ask for your help. We ask that you would meet us where we are. Show us how much you know us by speaking directly to us. Would you meet us where we are today, Lord God? But please, don't leave us as we are. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would take the words that we just read in your word, and the words that I hope to speak to bring attention to what you're saying in your word. Lord, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would take these things and you would move them from our ears down into our hearts. By your grace, would you show us more of Jesus today for the good of our souls and the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. As we consider being strengthened for the struggle, there are three things that we need to see in this text. We need to see the the wrong expectation about strength. The true definition of strength, and then the way to be strengthened. And I know I changed tense there. That is intentional. And just to let you know, the last point will be the longest point, because that is where the real power is. But before we get into that, we have to see and begin with the wrong expectation about strength. You know, here in America, we love a good overcomer story. We love stories about how someone struggles, but then because they're such a strong person, they're able to overcome their struggle in such a way that no longer is a struggle, it's now their triumph. I think this is basically every storyline of every movie that Hollywood has ever made, right? From James Bond to Toy Story, Star Wars to Finding Nemo. There's some kind of challenge that is faced, but the people, or the toys or the fish, are able to find strength to overcome their struggle. And we eat up these stories because we think that is what strength is. We think strength is being so strong that you can overcome any struggle so completely that it is no longer a struggle. We say things like, well, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Or we can even put a spiritual spin on it and say, well, God would never give me anything more than I could handle. We have this expectation that no matter how hard life gets, there's a strength that should be present within ourselves to overcome this obstacle. I can't tell you how many people who come into my counseling office, they come in not just with the burden that they're bearing, but with a sense of shame that I should be stronger than this. 
I should be able to get through this. And they're confused why they can't. Well, friends, according to what we just read in Colossians chapter 1, if we think that strength is having so much internal fortitude that we actually are able to overcome all our struggles, that we actually, strength is the absence of struggles. If that is our expectation of strength, well, that is the wrong expectation of strength. Because Paul here is praying for these people in Colossae that they would be strengthened. Why would he be praying for them to experience strength if they already had it naturally within themselves? We don't pray for things that just come naturally to us, do we? We, we don't pray to breathe. We just breathe. It just, it just happens. I had a friend once who was having an asthma attack, and I prayed over him because breath was not coming naturally to him. But generally speaking, we, we don't pray for things that just come naturally to us, that they're normally within us. We don't pray for what is normal. We pray for what is supernatural. Prayer is asking God to do something that we cannot do ourselves. And so what we're seeing here in Paul's prayer for the Colossians to be strengthened, what we're seeing is that strength is not natural to us. It is a myth to think that we should be so strong that we will never struggle. Strength is not something that comes innately from within ourselves. And if you're anything like me, you should find that actually very encouraging. Because to be honest, I don't always feel strong. I have a disease called Crohn's disease, and one time I was having a major flare of my disease, and someone was trying to encourage me by telling me how they had beaten cancer. They were telling me about how strong they were and how I could be strong like them. And I appreciate their desire to encourage me, but to be honest, their, their testimony of personal accomplishment did nothing but make me feel worse. Because now, not only was I still feeling sick, but now I was feeling like a loser compared to them. But friends, here's the dirty secret that no one wants to actually say or acknowledge out loud. None of us are really always strong. I serve as the team chaplain for the Philadelphia Phillies, and I can tell you that even in that clubhouse full of superstars, they have plenty of their own struggles just like anyone else. The expectation that being strong means that we won't struggle, friends, that is a mirage, a false reality that doesn't actually exist. Trying to get through life and get to the point where we're going to be so strong that we will never struggle. That's like trying to jump from Philly to Camden over the Delaware River. No one is going to be able to make that jump. No, no one is so strong that they'll be able to use their legs to get to the other side. Now, you might be stronger than me. You might be able to jump further than me. But everyone is falling short and falling into the Delaware River. Which is really nasty, but just stick with the analogy. It doesn't matter how strong we are, we will never be so strong that we'll be able to get to the other side of never having to struggle. That is the wrong expectation about strength that will only set us up to experience continual frustration. That, that's the wrong expectation. Here's the true definition of strength. Paul prays that they be strengthened for, and then verse 11, he lists three things. He, he's saying, he, here's what this strength is going to look like. It's not going to look like the removal of your struggles. It's not going to look like that. What's it going to look like? It's going to look like endurance. It's going to look like patience with joy. And it's going to look like gratitude. What he prays for them is not that they would have strength that would lead to an absence of struggle. But that in the presence of struggle, they would also experience endurance 
and joyful patience and gratitude. See, the struggle is there. The struggle is real. The struggle is not absent, but there is something else that is also present. Strength, according to this, is its endurance. The word here for endurance is the same word that gets used to to talk about bearing up. It's the idea that no matter what comes against you, you are bearing up under the pressure. You aren't giving ground. Endurance is experiencing a struggle that might be hard for you, but does not change you. And so I'm in pain, but I'm not fearful. I've been hurt, but I'm not bitter. I'm going through this, and it's hard, but I'm enduring. What is occurring around me or even happening against me is not changing how things are inside of me. That is endurance. Strength is not the absence of struggle, but the presence of endurance in the midst of struggle. And this is not a temporary endurance. It is a patient endurance. He prays for for endurance, and then he prays for, for patience. The old English word for patience is long-suffering. It's the willingness to endure something for a long time. Strength is patience. I'm not doubting that I'm going to make it through. I'm being patient, just waiting to come through. Strength is patience with, with joy. With joy. And there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is the feeling we get depending on what's happening to us. And so when good things happen to me, then I feel happy. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But joy is deeper than a transitory feeling. Joy is a choice to be content no matter what is happening to me. And so the strength of patience that Paul's praying for is not patience to just kind of grin and bear it and get through hard things. No, he's praying for a joyful patience, a patience where our souls are still content despite what we're going through. Paul prays that they would be strengthened to have endurance, to have joyful patience, and to be able to give thanks to God, right? Not thanks for the struggle, but thanks to God that he is who he says he is, even though life is really hard right now. That's the kind of strength that Paul's praying for the church in Colossae. Strength that is not an absence of struggle, but is the presence of endurance, joyful patience, and gratitude to God for who he is. Strength is all of that in the midst of struggle. And I, I see that definition here in this text, and there are two things that happen to me. First, I think I want some of that. And second, I think I don't often experience that. I want it but I don't often have it. I mean, on the one hand, don't you want some of that? Can you imagine how different your life would be if in the midst of your struggles you had greater endurance, more joyful patience, and, and a greater heart of gratitude? How often our struggles are compounded by our response to the struggles. And so I remember when I had my third surgery for my Crohn's disease, not only was that surgery painful and the rehab hard, that that would have been struggle enough, but my, my struggle was compounded by my response to the struggle. Instead of being enduring it and being patiently joyful through it, I became bitter that I had to go through it. I became angry that I was experiencing it. And at various points, I became depressed. My struggle was compounded by my response to the struggle. And so I see this list and I'm like, man, I want that. I, I want to have more of that kind of strength. I want that, but I'm also so often not like that. 
I don't always endure. I can be impatient. Gratitude is not the consistent state of my soul. And maybe you're feeling a little uncomfortable right now because, well, you're a pastor. You're supposed to have it all together. Well, we're a church that doesn't believe about lying in church. <laughs> and so we're, we're going to be honest about how real life is because I don't mind saying this because you know what? I know I'm not the only one. Maybe you're here and you're not struggling today. Maybe life is going great. But I know there's not a person alive who doesn't know what struggle is. We can struggle. Life can be hard. And our response to that isn't always perfect. We don't always experience the strength that Paul is talking about. But the good news is that Paul not only talks and prays for, the, for this church to be strengthened, he then goes on and shows us the way that we can be strengthened. This prayer takes on feet, if you will. This prayer gives way to some practical application that he does in really verses 12 through 18. Let's look at point number three, the way, the way to be strengthened. First, notice the tense of that word, strengthen. That, that, that's what Paul's praying for. He's not praying for them to be strong. He's praying for them to be strengthened. Not to give anyone nightmares from your high school English class, but let me just remind you that a passive verb means that the one who is engaged in it is not doing anything. It is not something they're doing. It is something that is happening to them. The, the, so as Paul is praying for them to be strengthened, he's saying, you're not being strong, but there is strength that can come from outside of you. If I see someone in the gym who can lift a lot of weight, I'm like, wow, they're really strong. But if I go to the hospital to visit someone who is sick and I ask the doctor if the medicine that they're giving them will be enough to strengthen them, I'm not saying that the sick person is strong. They aren't. They're sick. I'm asking if the medicine that is going into them will have strength to do something for them that they cannot currently do for themselves. To be strengthened means that you are the recipient of strength that is not coming from you. And this is good news for anyone who is willing to be honest that they struggle. Because this means that there is strength available to us that is beyond us and is not limited by us. Did you notice in verse 11 that Paul does not pray that they would be strengthened according to their nature? He prays that they be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. And then should we wonder what he means by that, he then immediately launches into a description of what God has done and who God is. In other words, he is saying that, that God can strengthen you, and now let me show you how strong God is by telling you what he has done for you and who he is for you. And so in verse 12, he talks about how God has qualified us to share in the inheritance. What is this inheritance? Well, we see it in verse 13. This inheritance is being delivered from the domain of darkness. Darkness in Scripture is often used as a metaphor to describe being separate from the God who is light. What a powerful image. Stumbling around. Not seeing things clearly. When you are in darkness, you are often in danger. And when you are in darkness, you are also alone. You can't, you can't see anyone else. It's just you. The philosopher Sartre famously wrote, hell is other people, but the reality is, hell is you being by yourself forever. It is complete darkness, complete isolation. But God has delivered us from that. 
He's brought us out of that. And did you notice, he hasn't just brought us out of it. He's now brought us into a new place. We're not just out of spiritual darkness. We are brought into what? God's kingdom. This is called the kingdom of light in verse 11. It is the kingdom of his beloved son. It's the kingdom where love exists eternally. Verse 13. It's the kingdom where Jesus Christ rules and reigns. Growing up, I loved watching Robin Hood movies. There's so many different versions of that, that story, but one of my favorite parts of it is always at the end, when after all this struggle, all this you know, stuff going on between Robin Hood and Prince John, the, the movies always end with what? King Richard comes back. And when King Richard comes back, all that was wrong gets made right. Because the king is now here once again ruling over his kingdom. Friends, life in the kingdom of darkness is spiritual bondage and tyranny. But God has delivered us from that and brought us into the kingdom where everything that is wrong in this world will be made right because it's the kingdom where King Jesus reigns. And in his kingdom in verse 14, we're told that we have redemption. That word redemption comes from the ancient slave trade where a slave could be freed for redemption price. So when we see the word redemption, we should be seeing the word freedom. And here's how this freedom comes. We have redemption. What? Through the forgiveness of sins. Friends, when we come into God's kingdom, all the shame of our past regrets... All the things that should disqualify us from being able to draw near to God. All the baggage that we can carry with us about the wrongs that we have done. All of that that, that stuff, it, it gets left at the door of his kingdom. Because over the door of Jesus' kingdom is the word forgiven. And so anyone who comes through that door is no longer defined by what they have done, but is able to walk in the freedom of forgiveness that comes from and through Jesus Christ. This is the work of God that He has done for us. He has qualified us. He has redeemed us. He has freed us. And how different would our life be How much more endurance and patient joy and gratitude would we have if we lived like this was true? But we don't always live like the work God has done for us is actually true about us. Let's be honest, the struggles of our life can often be more real to us than the work of our God. Once one of my kids was getting ready to jump off a diving board and into my arms, but before they jumped, they said, Dad, are you really sure you're going to be able to catch me? This is before I started working out at the gym again. Um, right? They, they, they saw the water, and what they saw made them question what I could actually do. How often we can see the struggles of our life. We can see the hard things coming to us, and, and the harder they look, the more that we begin to doubt what God can actually do. That the fears of this life can obscure the work that we just heard that God has done. This was actually one of the problems with the church in Colossae. We see in chapter 2 that some false teachers had come in and were spreading distrust that Jesus was really God. That they're raising questions about who his person was that led that church to doubt the work that Jesus had done. They're like, can Jesus really do all this for you? He's, he's just a good teacher. 
How could he possibly do all this? That, that, that was the dilemma facing the church in Colossae. They were doubting the person of Jesus, which made them doubt the work of Jesus. Which is why Paul goes on, after talking about the work of Jesus, to connect that to the person of Jesus. And he walks through this beautiful ancient hymn about who Jesus is. Here's who God Jesus is. Here's who this one is who has done this incredible work for you. Here's who he is. He is the image, verse 15, of the invisible, invisible God. When we see Jesus, when we read about him in the Bible, friends, what we are seeing is God himself. You want to know what God is like? Can God feel distant and like some kind of abstract idea to you? Friends, when Jesus' disciples said, Jesus, show us God the Father. Jesus said, have I not been with you so long and you do not know me? To see Jesus is to see the face of God. Every other major religious figure from Buddha to Muhammad, they wrote about what they had learned. But Jesus came and said, let me tell you about who God is. He's me. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, verse 15 says, of creation. Now by firstborn, this does not mean that Jesus was born, that he was created. This is a term that was used in the ancient world to describe the one to whom everything in the household belonged. This was the heir, the one who had the right to rule over all things. The firstborn wasn't necessarily referring even to chronology. You, you, could, you could decide anyone was the firstborn. It was, it was who the, the, the household decided was the one to whom everything belonged. Jesus is the one to whom everything belongs. He is the firstborn of all creation. Everything that is in existence is his. And the reason this is because verse 16 tells us all things were created through him. You might have some things that say made in China or India or in the United States. But make no mistake, everything in existence has come into existence through Jesus. It's all made by him. This world might have started with a big bang. I don't know. But if it did, Jesus is the one who said boom. He's what philosophers would say is the uncaused first cause. That's why verse 17 immediately goes on to say he is before all things. He is the being from which everything came to be because he is the one who was there before anything came to be. Everything in existence has an origin story. It all comes from somewhere. But that has to end at some point. There can't be an infinite regress. Jesus is the end point. He is the first mover. He is the only thing that has never been created by anything, but has put everything else into creation. Jesus is the one who made all things, and in verse 17 we're told, Jesus is the one who holds all things together. The other day, one of my kids came home and said, Hey, Dad, what I learned in school today is that you can never trust an atom, because atoms make up everything. You get it? You know, it's like, hey, great, I'm grateful my school's teaching my nine-year-old son dad jokes at his age. Some high-quality education we're going for here. But, but he's right. Atoms make up everything. They're, they're the basic building block of all existence. But did you know that an atom is made up of a nucleus that has positively charged protons at the center? 
Now, I didn't learn a lot in science, but I did know this, that if you take two things that are charged the same way, take a magnet and take both the positive sides, what happens when you put them together? They repel each other. They, they, they don't, they're not meant to stick together. They actually go, they, they push apart. So in the middle of an atom, the basic building block of everything in existence, in the middle of the atom is a paradox. Atoms should blow apart, but they're kept together. And scientists say they're kept together by something called the nuclear force. And what is nuclear force? Well, they call it a fundamental part of nature. Do you know what a fundamental part of nature is? That's something scientists have no idea how to explain. They say it is. Friends, we see in verse 17 why that is. In Jesus, all things hold together. The reason nothing is separate right now is because he has made things in such a way that the very atoms that make up our existence require his power to hold them together. Which is why we see in verse 18, this one who's made all things and holds all things together. This, this is why he's clearly the head of the church, his body. The body is a metaphor the Bible often uses to describe the church. We all have a part to play. That's why it talks about that. We might be have a hand, a, a feet. We all do different things. But there's only one head, Jesus Christ. And guess what? You can live without a hand. We are all dispensable. But any body without a head is dead. And any body with two heads is a monster. Jesus is the only rightful ruler of his church. He is the head of the church, his body. This is who Jesus is. He is the creator, the owner of all, the maker, the sustainer, the ruler we are to look to. But, but how do we know? How do we actually know? It's one thing to say this. How, how do we know that this is who he really is? Well, friends, it's because of what we are celebrating today. Verse 18 closes this beautiful climax. He is the firstborn. He is the firstborn from the dead. Here we see another firstborn reference, again referring to Jesus' right to rule, but now it is speaking about his right to rule over death. Romans chapter 3, 23 says that the wages of sin, what our life of sin deserves to be paid by God, the wages of sin is death. Death is the unconquerable curse of humanity. We can build ships and conquer the seas. We can build airplanes and conquer the skies. We can even build spaceships and conquer the scars, but stars, but we've been unable to build anything that can conquer death. Oh, we've discovered medicines that can extend life, but no medicine can indefinitely stop death. Death comes to us all. But Jesus came to die in our place. He went into death. He received that wage from God. Not for what he had done, but for what we do. Jesus went into death, and not just physical death, but the spiritual death of judgment from God. All that would take us in eternity to experience in hell, he had condensed down into those horrific hours on the cross. And he did not gasp out, it is finished, until he'd suffered everything necessary for our salvation. And it was then that he went into death. He gave up his spirit and bowed his head. And his body was put in a tomb. And that body lay there still for three days. For three days, the stone tomb was silent. But then early, early, early Sunday morning, 
the stone in front of the doorway to the grave began to shake. And because Jesus' death had paid for our punishment of death, there no longer remained any reason for him to stay dead. And so that stone was thrown away, and Jesus emerged from the grave as the firstborn from the dead. He had conquered the unconquerable, and death bowed in defeat as Jesus stepped forward and took back his life here to hundreds of eyewitnesses who are willing to testify even under the threat of death that they'd seen the risen Lord. Jesus rose from the dead and had recorded as a historical fact so that no doubt would remain that he is alive. And now because Jesus reigns over death for anyone who puts their faith in him, while one day we will close our eyes in physical death, for the Christian, all we are doing is closing our eyes on this world and opening our eyes to the glory of God's kingdom forever. Friends, Jesus' victory over death is so final and complete that what used to be our enemy, he has turned into his errand boy. Death is no longer a threat to be feared, but the servant of God that he uses to bring us home. That's the power of the firstborn from the dead. And all this is so that, as we can see in verse 18, all this is so that we might know that Jesus is preeminent. He is supreme. There is no one greater than him. And so you know what that means? Because there is no one greater than the firstborn from the dead, he can do what he says he can do because there is no one and nothing that can stop him from doing it. Do you need some strength for your struggles today? Can life get you down? Can, can you sometimes wonder how you're going to face tomorrow? Friends, you need to know that no matter what you have been through, are going through, or will face, if you place your faith in Jesus, then you are qualified to receive the inheritance he has earned for you. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. You are redeemed and forgiven right now today and you have an eternity of love to look forward to forever and all of those promises of God are as true as Jesus' tomb is empty. The firstborn from the dead has power over life and death and so there is nothing that can stop him for making come true what he has promised to you. Do you need some strength? You want some greater endurance? You want to experience more joyful patience? You want to have a heart of gratitude even in the midst of struggles? Well, how about this for some strength? The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who made all things, sustains all things, rules over all things. The one who went to de death and came back to life to prove his victory of eternal life. This unstoppable, incomparable, unconquerable God. He has all strength to give you. Listen, friends, if you're just trying to be strong, there'll always be a limit to your strength. Your struggles might get the best of you, but they will never get the best of God. So don't try to be strong according to your power. But come to him and be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might shown to us in Jesus Christ. If there's just one sentence that you remember from all this, here's what I hope this is. Here's what I hope all this is leading to and boiling down to. Strength for our struggles 
comes through savoring the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You want some strength for our struggles? Strength for your struggles is going to come through savoring the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I use that word savor because people often ask, well, what do I need to do in order to really experience the strength of Jesus? What do you need to do when there's an incredible meal put before you? What do you need to do? You need to eat it. You, 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 you need to sit down and savor it. You don't need to go into the kitchen and start trying to cook something and add in a side dish. You sit and enjoy. And, and, and then when you sit and enjoy that meal, you don't expect that meal to satisfy you. You're, you're going to need to eat again. And so what do you need? You're, you're going to need to savor something again. And so friends, what we're meant to see is Jesus is a feast for our famished souls that we can come to again and again and again. And what do we do? We enjoy him. What's your application? What's your take home? Savor Jesus. Enjoy him. This is why we gather every Sunday what the Bible calls the Lord's Day because of the day he rose from the grave. We gather every Sunday as a church to do what? To savor the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's why we have small groups that meet together in people's homes throughout the week. Why do we do that? So we can encourage each other. Hey, life might be hard right now, but let's savor Jesus together. Everything we do as a church is designed to help us do one thing only, and that is to savor Jesus Christ. Because life can be so distracting. Life can be so disorienting. And if we let it, we'll let it reprioritize all kinds of things. But friends, while the struggles can be real, there's a Savior who's even more real. And so this week, if your boss is unreasonable and your job feels unbearable, someone hurts you and does wrong to you, if anxiety comes creeping into your mind and heart, if bad news comes unexpectedly to your door, kids, if schoolwork seems overwhelming to you, and there are some people in your school who are really mean to you. I don't know what struggles you might face this week. But I do know how we're going to be able to endure. How we're going to be able to have joyful patience. How we're going to be able to have gratefulness. It's not through us trying to be strong. It's by coming to God and receiving this invitation from Him to be strengthened. Strength for our struggles comes through savoring the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so whether it's for the first time today or for the thousandth time, friends, we're being invited by his text to come to Jesus. To stop trying to go it alone. To come to him. To put our trust in him. To surrender our life to him. To savor the supremacy of him. Strength for our struggles comes through savoring the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer.